Welcome to Today on Broadway for Monday, April 9th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. And I'm on my way to a BFA's Natalie Nowak. Everybody, we are recording on Sunday morning for a little FYI. So here's what we've got later this morning or retroactively in your Twitter and your uh, podcast feed. Uh, James and company will be talking with uh, Drew Drogi from uh, Bright Colors, Bold Patterns. Uh, that show is actually closed off Broadway yesterday, but it has been filmed for Broadway HD. So that will be showing up on the streaming service very soon. Also, on Saturday, we uh, had our interview with Ethan Slater, SpongeBob SquarePants himself. James, that was a lot of fun. Uh, We talked about it last week, so hopefully people enjoyed that and were able to listen to that. However, we want to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what this episode is. We are recording on Sunday morning. Like we said, James is going out to Milburn, New Jersey to see The Sting at Paper Mill Playhouse. And I am going to the Bob Carr Theater here in Orlando to see Pod Save America on tour. So... There's some things happening on Sunday that we're going to need to talk about in this episode. However, since we're recording before they happen, we can't talk about them yet. Those are Mean Girls opening on Broadway and the Olivier Awards. James, Natalie, and I are going to record and and, and do all the other stuff we're talking about. And then later tonight, I'm going to come in and drop in those uh, bits of information. So if things feel a little disjointed, that's why. But we didn't want to keep you waiting too long for Mean Girls and the Olivier's. All right, Matt, what were the Mean Girls reviews like? I'm so glad you asked, James, even though you actually asked about 14 hours ago. Um, But as I pretty much expected, the reviews are mostly mixed, with some critics criticizing the show for having a forgettable score and overly frenetic pace, while others, with whom I tend to agree, cite the show's fun nature and dynamite performances. But before we get to the reviews in full, last night, the new musical adaptation of the hit big-screen comedy Mean Girls opened at Broadway's August Wilson Theater. With a book by original screenwriter and comedy legend Tina Fey, the music was written by her multi-Emmy Award-winning husband Jeff Richmond, with lyrics by Nell Benjamin. Directed and choreographed by Tony winner Casey Nicola, the show stars a formidable group of young talent, led by Erica Henningsen as Katie Heron, Taylor Louderman as Regina George, Ashley Park as Gretchen Wieners, Kate Rockwell as Karen Smith, Gray Henson as Damien, Barrett Wilbert Weed as Janice, and more. Carrie Butler graduates to the female authority figure role, playing three equally hilarious parts in the show. Okay, now to what the critics had to say. First up, as always, Ben Brantley from the New York Times said, quote, That this Mean Girls takes place 14 years later than the film has proved no obstacle to Miss Faye. After all, social media only increases opportunities for social climbing and subversion. No, the trouble lies in the less assured translation of Miss Faye's sly take on adolescent social angst into crowd-pleasing song and dance. Mr. Richmond and Miss Benjamin's many, many musical numbers are passable by middle-of-the-road Broadway standards. He continues, quote, As long as they're talking, the lead students of Mean Girls exude an idiosyncratic, carefully exaggerated comic charm. You have, on the one hand, the designer-garbed despots of the title, Miss Lauderman's Regina, Miss Park's terminally insecure Gretchen, and Kate Rockwell's terminally stupid Karen. It's, it's true. On the other, there are the freaks and geeks misfits, Gray, Han- Gray Henson's almost too gay to function Damien and Barrett Wilbert Weed's deadpan goth girl Janice. Carrie Butler is very funny as a variety of grownups. So Brentley thinks the musical is good when there's no music. 
you know, I'd say mixed. But with a more nuanced view on the show, Sarah Holdren of Vulture said, quote, It's continuously, mischievously self-aware, as is becoming the happy standard for intelligent, musical adaptations of confidently comical material. The show was in a kind of winking, breathlessly referential conversation, not only with the movie that spawned it, but with the genre into which it's being adapted and with the current moment of its recreation a 2018 that often feels barely advanced beyond the lava-hot emotional messes and machinations of high school. Holdren goes on to praise Henson and Wilbert Weed, as well as the supporting plastics, writing, quote, As the Minions, Gretchen and Karen, the spectacular Ashley Park and Kate Rockwell snatch scene after scene. Frankly, they outshine the show's stars, which is no knock on Henningsen or to Taylor Louderman, who does a bang-up job as Regina and can belt like nobody's business. But Regina and Katie, in their own ways, have to be the straight women, while Park and Rockwell get to flex their comic muscles. Park is a brilliant collection of neurotic tics and forced smiles as Gretchen, the trying-so-hard-it-hurts-keeper of Regina's secrets. She ends her review writing, quote, It's not shocking that Mean Girls is a fast-paced, fancy, fun time, but it's a real treat to find that it's still witty, worldly, and wise. Now, on the other hand, Matt Winman of AM New York said, quote, Mean Girls, on the other hand, proves to be a wishy-washy, pointless adaptation of the smart and sassy 2004 film. The primary problem is that the songs are underwhelming and awkwardly inserted into the dialogue. As if trying to compensate, the production pulsates with high energy and hyperkinetic movement, as seen in everything from the broad-style performances to the shifting digital projections and all-out dance choreography. Back on the other end of the scale, Adam Feldman of Time Out New York gave the show four out of five stars, saying, quote, Where Mean Girls glows most is in the spotlight it shines on its cast. Taylor Louderman is sensational as the black-hearted Regina, fearsome leader of the Queen Beach trio known as the Plastics. And he actually spelled that B-E-E-Y-A-T-C-H in case you're scoring at home. And finally, to wrap up this mixed bag of reviews, Barbara Schuller from Newsday said, quote, Despite vibrant performances from a uniformly talented cast, the show drags, especially in the first act when I found myself eyeing my watch like a kid dying for the bell to ring. And the music by Faye's husband, Jeff Richmond, is repetitive and not particularly memorable. I know I said that I wasn't going to talk too much on the podcast about the shows that I saw in early previews, but Mean Girls was my favorite thing that I saw on my trip, despite being very aware of its shortcomings, including the mostly forgettable score. But anyway, if you have or will see the show, let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, We're really interested to hear how the audiences feel about this since the critics seem to be so divided. All right, Matt, what happened with the Olivier Awards? As has become something of a broken record over the past three-plus years, Hamilton was the big winner at the theater awards that were held in London yesterday, taking home trophies for seven of its 13 nominations. While Lin-Manuel Miranda was back in New York, homesick and quarantined from his baby, uh, the show took home the Laurence Olivier Awards for Best New Musical, Outstanding Achievement in Music for both Miranda and orchestrator Alex Lacamoire, Best Actor in a Musical for Giles Torreira as Aaron Burr, Best Actor in a Supporting Role in a Musical for Michael Jim. Gibson as King George III, Best Lighting Design, Best Sound Design, and Best Theater Choreographer. On the play side of the spectrums, The Ferryman, which will be transferring to Broadway this fall, collected three Olivier Awards, including Best New Play, Best Director for Sam Mendes, and Best Actress in a Play for Laura Donnelly. The National Theater celebrated five awards, including Best Revival of a Play for Angels in America and Best Musical Revival for Follies. Brian Cranston won Best Actor for his role in Network, and Denise Guff won Best Actress in a Supporting Role for her performance in Angels in America. 
In some of the other categories, Shirley Henderson and Sheila Adam won Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress in a Musical, respectively, both for Girl from the North Country. Bertie Carville won for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Inc. We will have a complete list of all the Olivier winners in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. Take a look at them because I have a feeling some of these shows will end up stateside sooner rather than later. All right. What do we have in the show and casting news? All right. For fans of the 1995 movie Empire Records, yesterday was the annual holiday known as Rex Manning Day. And to celebrate on Friday, producer Bill Weiner announced that a stage adaptation of the film was currently in the works. Original screenwriter Carol Hankinen will adapt the script for the stage, while Jonathan Larson Grant winner Zoe Snarnak is writing the score. The team is targeting a world premiere of 2020 to coincide with the film's 25th anniversary. If you're unfamiliar with the film, this cult classic focuses on a Delaware independent record store staffed by a collection of eclectic and unusual music-obsessed, if not snobby, young folks. The film starred Liv Tyler, Renee Zellweger, Anthony LaPaglia, Robin Tooney, Debbie Mazur, Ethan Embry, and cool writer Maxwell Caulfield as 80s pop idol Rex Manning. If I'm being completely honest, the film never got good reviews and to this day is not thought of as a very good movie and even though it's become like i said a cult favorite it has been a long time since i've seen it but i don't personally remember it being all that good much of the love for the film centers on the soundtrack which include a lot of mid 90s not grunge but grunge adjacent bands like uh the the gin blossoms toad the wet sprocket better than ezra cracker and much much more but like i said this musical is going to get an all new score. So it's not using the songs from the soundtrack. So it'll be interesting to see what Sarnak comes up with, whether she kind of retains that feeling, whether the, uh, whether the show stays in its mid nineties setting or is updated. Uh, but either way, I guess we'll find out here in about two years. Let me ask you something about this. Um, because, uh, our friend Rob Johnston had posted it on Facebook, um, this Mm -hmm. news. And I said, you know, I really don't remember this film. Uh, but having gone back and looked at the uh, trailer for it from I- IMDb, not IBDB, but the IMDb yeah. trailer for it, it looks like a Breakfast Club rip ripoff. And um, is it- I mean, there, to an extent, uh, to an extent, it's, you know, because it is a group of kids. They're not in detention. They're working at this music store. It's, there's it's similar. But I mean, it's a, it's 10 years later. You know, I think Breakfast Club was probably somewhat close to 85. I don't remember exactly what year it was, maybe even earlier. But it's it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's in that same vein. But then again, how many different teen movie constructs are there? I could see that, though. But but yeah, it, it's more about, you know, it's, it's kind of like maybe if you took the Breakfast Club and High Fidelity yeah. and masked mm-hmm. them yeah. together with that like music snobness um, from High Fidelity. Um, I, th- I think that would probably be a, a decent way to mash those things up and explain this one. So have you ever heard of a, uh, a, a adaptation of The Breakfast Club? It seems like that would be easy to do on a stage. I have not. I mean, it's a singular set pretty much. I mean, other than, you know, at the end, he's going on the football field or whatever. But yeah, I know I haven't. That's kind of interesting. Can you somebody get on that and write that? Jason Robert Brown, you know, Adam- <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> well, they did have um, out it, the same place that started the uh, the Cruel Intentions yeah. musical, and they did like Scream musical, the, the Rockford Table and Stage out in Los Angeles. They did a John Hughes parody musical. Oh, that's right. So I'm yeah. sure. 
I'm sure that Breakfast Club was very heavily featured in that, along with Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles and all those things. Um, so I'm sure that's a big part of it. But obviously, those are parody things, and Cruel Intentions is kind of the outlier that became something bigger. But but yeah, that's a good. That's a very good point. I'm I'm sure there's some innovating producer out there already working on getting the rights. And the talk about the whole uh, adjacent to grunge type of music there. I'm very surprised we've never seen some sort of, even at a fringe, or maybe it has happened, I haven't seen it, some sort of Kurt Cobain musical. I, I feel like there's been like a Kurt and Courtney Love thing mm-hmm. at one point. Maybe yeah. There, was there a Courtney Love musical or something? I think you're right. Um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, even like a a, a trunk show, like, um, oh, the, what's the the Green Day show? American, American Idiot. Something Idiot, American yeah. Idiot style mm-hmm. where they take Nirvana music yeah. and, and put a story around it. That could make a lot of sense. Um, but who knows? Maybe. Maybe we'll see. I mean, it's, it's one thing, though. I, if you're singing Smells Like Teen Spirit and you have to actually enunciate the lyrics, <laughs> it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Because if you're familiar with that song, yeah. the lyrics are unintelligible. And when you do try to figure them out, they're even more unintelligible when you know what he's actually saying. Mm, that's a problem. <laughs> All right, let's move forward into Cheryl Crow's Diner is uh, still aiming for Broadway. Yeah, so they say. Um, <laughs> so this is another screen to stage adaptation. But back in 2014, a musical adaptation of the film Diner featuring a score by pop star Cheryl Crow had its world premiere at Washington, D.C.'s Signature Theater. Then in 2016, the show had what was supposed to be a pre-Broadway tryout at the Delaware Theater Company. Now, however, since then, not much has been said about the show or its prospects, leading many, myself, to assume that it will never make the move to Broadway. However, last week, the Delaware Theater Company's executive director, Bud Martin, said in an interview that the show is still planning to come to New York, but it's just a matter of time. He said, quote, the Schubert's want diner, but they don't want to go up against waitress. It's a matter of timing. Hmm. Seems suspicious Mm. to me. Um, Anyway, Martin also said that a number of other shows that have had lives at the theater are still aiming for Broadway, including Duncan Sheik and Nell Benjamin's Because of Wind Dixie, Maurice Hines' Tapping Through Life, Nell Bartram and Brian Hill's Something Wicked This Way Comes, and Bruce Valanche's A Sign of the Times. Now, James, Natalie, this seems optimistic to me, and maybe it's just a regional theater executive trying to keep his theater's name in the press, but it seems like because of the delay for a lot of these shows, especially, uh, I know, Diner and, and because of when Dixie have been gone for a while and tapping through life was off Broadway. But uh, it seems like it would be an uphill battle getting these shows on Broadway after such layoffs. And nobody was obviously forking up a bunch of money to get them on Broadway right away. Yeah, uh, I feel like, you know, we kind of lost. There's so many good ideas that we lose track of. Um I was thinking the other day just about of uh, Secret Garden and what's happening with that. Uh, you know, there was so much buzz about it immediately, and then it's kind of fallen off our radar screen. There's so many things like that. Uh, I hope that we do see at least another regional production of Diner, if not uh, a full-on Broadway production, just so that we can see what is there and and possibly it, it could have some sort of other life. I mean, successful theatrical productions don't have to always land on Broadway. 
No, absolutely. And this, if this one, if I remember correctly, this one had a really dynamite cast out in Delaware, even especially for um, a regional show. And it was one that I think everyone assumed that it would bring that entire cast with it. If I'm looking through the cast right now, you had people like Derek Klenna was in it. Breno O'Malley was in it. Ethan Slater, we just talked to, um, was in it. Matthew James Thomas was in it. Um, so, I mean, these are these are folks who have Broadway pedigree and have actually gone on to become bigger stars even since then when we're talking about Derek Klenna and uh, and Ethan Slater. So this is something that had a pretty strong cast and just didn't go well out of town, apparently. All right. Let's move forward into a tremendously surprising story. Lincoln Center president uh, Deborah Spar resigns after one year. Yeah. Back in 2016, Jed Bernstein, the president at that point of Lincoln Center was reportedly forced to step down 27 months into his tenure because, according to the New York Times, it was discovered that he had been in a relationship with a staff member. And then last week, Deborah L. Spar, who replaced him in the role, announced her resignation just one year after taking the job. Spar had been the president of Barnard College before taking the job at Lincoln Center, and in her letter of resignation sent to colleagues on Friday, said, quote, moving from academia to the performing arts world pushed me to think, learn, and leave in new ways. While we have achieved a lot together over the past year, I've also questioned whether the role is right for me. As I looked back on the past 12 months, I ultimately determined that the fit I'd hoped for has not materialized. It is for this reason that I've decided it is best for the organization for me to step down. The New York Times notes that the past year has been a difficult one for Lincoln Center and Spar specifically, with plans to rebuild David Geffen Hall being dramatically scaled back because of the cost, the ending of the popular summer Lincoln Center Festival, internal clashes between existing staff and staff members that Spar brought in to surround her, and a projected deficit for this fiscal year. Now, James, you are much more plugged into these things than I am, but what do you think this means big picture for Lincoln Center? This is a really uh, – the, the Lincoln Center is at a crossroad here. They've been having a problem keeping this uh, position filled. And that position, in, in my opinion, is really someone who needs to be a rainmaker, somebody who could raise the half billion dollars that they need to redesign or rebuild Lincoln Center, uh, the, 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 the three – or four individual buildings there. Um, they, it's a very ambitious half a $500 million plan, half a billion dollars that they had laid out uh, a number of years ago. And uh, Geffen stepped up and gave them a hundred million dollars. And Geffen has been vocal about um, other very wealthy people in the New York city area, not stepping up to uh, match that money to get this, re uh, this redevelopment off the ground here. Uh, on the flip side of it, uh, Deborah Spar left a great job at Barnard College, uh, which is the sister school to Columbia University, for those who are unfamiliar with it, um, as the president. And wow, I, I don't know. They, they have a temp, they have an interim, uh, interim president right now, uh, at Lincoln Center and they're doing a nationwide search, but this doesn't bode well. And, um, it's uh, tremendously surprising. Also, the shortfall in a projected deficit, it, you know, there's uh, most most companies operate with two different types of budgets. One is a capital budget for 
big improvements like with the one we're talking the $500 million budget. And then there's an operating budget where they talk about the different programming that they put on and the pluses and minuses there. So it's surprising that they're having a, a deficit, which might be one of the things that led to the pullback of the Lincoln Center Festival. We're going to have to f uh, keep our eye on this one because this is really critical, not just uh, to Broadway, but to the, all the arts organizations, the Metropolitan Opera, the Philharmonic, uh, anybody who works up in the Lincoln Center area. So this is very, very troubling. All right. Um, so Natalie, let's get into this week's theatrical schedule. What do you have for us? All right. Well, first up, Playwrights Horizons This Flat Earth opens off-Broadway tonight. An urgent response to our times, This Flat Earth is a startling and deeply felt story of growing up in our confounding world, and it will run through April 29th. The Public Theater's Miss You Like Hell opens on Tuesday. Two-time Tony nominee Daphne Rubin Vega is Beatrice, a flawed mom to 16-year-old Olivia and an undocumented immigrant on the verge of deportation. After living estranged from each other for years, they go on a road trip where they meet Americans of different backgrounds, shared dreams, and complicated truths. This production will run through May 6th. Classic stage companies Summer and Smoke will begin previews on Wednesday. In turn-of-the-century Mississippi, the local minister's daughter walks the line between religious devotion and sensuality with the neighborhood doctor who grew up next door. The cast features Tony nominee Barbara Walsh, as well as Tony nominee Marin Ireland, who is a graduate of the Hart School, where I'm currently in college. Summer and Smoke will officially open on May 3rd. The Broadway revival of Children of a Lesser God is opening on Wednesday at Studio 54. Children of a Lesser God tells the story of James Leeds, a new teacher at a school for the deaf, and Sarah Norman, the school's one-time star student, who has stayed behind as its cleaning woman rather than venturing out into the hearing world. James takes a keen interest in her, and they soon embark on an emotional journey that will teach them both new ways of communicating, and they build a romance in the process. The Broadway revival of Carousel is opening on Thursday at the Imperial Theater. The all-star production features Tony Award winner Jesse Mueller as Julie Jordan, Tony nominee Joshua Henry as Billy Bigelow, and opera superstar Renee Fleming as Nettie Fowler. This production is directed by three-time Tony Award winner Jack O'Brien. The Will Rogers Follies will open at good speed in East Haddam, Connecticut on Friday. It's a rags-to-riches story about America's beloved stage, screen, and radio star and follows Will's rise from obscurity to stardom. This production will run through June 21st. Hey, Natalie, let me let me jump in here. Are, are, yeah. Do you have any plans on going and seeing that since you're in the Connecticut yes, I area? Actually, yeah, a friend and I were talking about that the other day. We're going to go and see it. I saw, uh, actually, I think I saw a high school production in Kansas when I was living in, in Kansas City. I loved that show, and I've always loved uh, some of the music, Never Met a Man I Didn't Like, uh, Give a Man Enough Rope. Um, so to see a, a high-quality professional production, I think you'll love it if you go. Um, but I, I, you know, the one time I saw it, it was one of my favorite you know, kind of experiences, and it was just a little high school thing. So I, I, if you, if you yeah. get it, let us know, because I, uh, I think it'll be a really cool show to see. Yeah, I will. I'm excited. It sounds like it'll be a good production. Um, all right. Next up, Playwrights Horizons off-Broadway production Dance Nation will open on Friday. An army of preteen competitive dancers are training for a prestigious dance competition, and in the process, they find themselves and fight to unleash their power. Dance Nation will run through May 27th. Now moving on to the closings for this week. Keen Company's off-Broadway production Later Life will close on Saturday. In Chicago, the world premiere 
premiere of Pretty Woman will close on Sunday. And lastly, Barrel Group's off-Broadway revival, A Walk in the Woods, will close on Sunday. And that is all for this week. All right. Uh, Matt, why don't you get us out of here? All right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMATT. And subscribe to something like a pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Natalie, where are you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Natalie underscore Nowak. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Hey, Matt, I was just thinking that uh, maybe when you do the drop-ins tonight with um, the Olivier's and the other reviews, uh, we can get an update on the Masters Tournament because uh, Reed is down as under by 14, but Tiger, Tiger Woods, they're saying he's going to come back and win it all. He, he is not. Okay. He, he's, he's not going to win. So we don't have to do that. <laughs> but I'll let you know. No, well, I mean, I, I can if you want. I mean, <laughs> Reed and McElroy have quite a rivalry dating back to the uh, the 2016 Ryder Cup, and they're going to be in the final pairing today. So uh, yeah. could be some fireworks. Excellent. So thanks for uh, starting off your week with us. And Matt and I will be back and talk with you tomorrow. 